Blog Talk Radio. The following broadcast is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network. Golf Talk Live is sponsored by the iGolf Sports Network and Golf Tips Magazine. Here's Andrew to tell you more about our sponsors. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast. And Golf Tips, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, including reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top teaching professionals, all designed to help you improve from tee to green. Welcome to Golf Talk Live with your host, Ted Odorico. Join Ted each week as he speaks with some of the best in golf. This week's special guest will join us a bit later. But first up is another great discussion on Coach's Corner. So let's introduce tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, as uh, you just heard, and uh, very excited to be here another Thursday evening uh, live on the blogtalkradio.com network, and uh, always excited to uh, to do these shows uh, for two reasons. One, I enjoy uh, speaking with some of my fellow professionals and obviously have some interesting guests uh, along the way, uh, but also um, you guys listening into the show. I, I know that uh, you've had... Uh, some of you have reached out over the years and had some questions and, and uh, things that uh, you'd like to hear on the program, and I'm always trying to do my best to accommodate you uh, whenever and wherever possible, so I will continue to do that. Uh, but I want to thank you guys for tuning in live, and for those of you that obviously will listen a little bit later, the best way to do that obviously is to go to blogtalkradio.com slash golftalklive, and you can just scroll down to the on-demand section and listen to the recorded version when it's convenient for you. But Again, for those of you joining me live, uh, thank you. And uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna introduce the coaches' corner panel here in just a little bit, uh, in just a second or two. Uh, but a little bit later, my special guest is gonna be Ter- Terry Kohler. Uh, he's the chairman and director of innovation at Edison Golf, and he's gonna come on and talk about uh, their wedges and uh, some interesting stuff going on in 2023 here uh, at Edison Golf. So. Uh, he's going to come on a little bit later on the program. All right, let me introduce the panel, and we'll get into tonight's discussion. First up, of course, is John Decker, uh, become a regular on the program over the years. Uh, he is the Director of Instruction at the Medallion Club up in Columbus, Ohio, and you'll find him there now, uh, giving some great lessons. Uh, he's also Senior Editor and Top 25 Instructor at Golf Tips Magazine. Uh, he was a former Head Instructor at the Grand Cypress Academy of Golf in Orlando and the 2015 Southern Ohio Teacher of the Year. And he's also authored, uh, his first book was Golf is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, which of course includes accompanying Bible study. Uh, he's also a public speaker, and he's been working on his second book, which I'll let him tell you a little bit about that uh, later on in the broadcast. Also joining on the show, uh, become a, a regular this season, and glad to have him back, is uh, Jim Endicott. He's uh, been teaching this great game of golf for 38 years. Uh, he's a former uh, general manager for Golf Digest Schools and a seven-time PGA Award winner including the 2022 uh, North Florida PGA Sections Patriot Award and also two North Florida PGA Youth Development Awards. And currently he is the Director of Instruction at Royal St. Cloud Golf Links in St. Cloud, Florida. So, gentlemen, welcome to Coach's Corner here on Golf Talk Live. Thank you, Ted. Thank you, Ted. Great to be here. All right. I appreciate it. And uh, just a, a quick side note before we start. So, Jim, you're in, what, Arizona, you said? I am. I'm in uh, Phoenix. Uh, my son 
his college team made the national championship for the for NAIA golf, and uh, they are now in their they just finished their third round, uh, poised for round number four tomorrow. Well, very good. So you're there on the sidelines uh, cheering him on, and and uh, we wish him all, all the best and his team as well. So, um, so we're going to talk about uh, course management. Uh, on the show. I know we've touched on this before, uh, but I've got some interesting perspectives that we're going to discuss tonight. There's a number of them here. We'll try to get through uh, all of them if we can. So, you know, obviously while concentrating on the basics is important, uh, but your course management ability uh, is what really significantly can impact your game. So here are some uh, uh, golf management tips uh, that will basically tell you all you need to know. And John, I'm going to start with you, and this is going to be when, when people first hear this one here, and I'm sure you will probably feel the same, uh, are going to find it a little bit odd, but when you understand the premise of it, uh, it'll make perfect sense. And the first one is stop working on your swing. And uh, as I said, what I, what I mean by that is many of our, our students, amateur golfers out there, focus intently all the time on their swing and very little else. And sometimes it can be a detriment as well as, as uh, uh, even a curse. Um, talk a little bit about that. Obviously, it's important. We, we don't mean it literally. We want people to obviously be working on their swing and, and that. But they can also go the other way and spend too much time on that and maybe not other areas that could be beneficial. Give us your thoughts here. Well, Ted, thanks again for having me on the show. And, Jim, I look forward to being on with you tonight as well. Um, you, you bring up a very um, – great point about um, the transition from taking what we learn on the driving range and being able to apply it out on the golf course. And um, a lot of times um, I see students hit the ball beautifully on the driving range, and I know that I've gone through this myself, um, and, and you just you think to them, you think this person is really going to be able to take this out on the golf course. And then when they get on the golf course, it, they're not playing the golf course. They're playing their golf swing. They are playing uh, what they, you know, they're used to having, you know, maybe a bucket of balls in front of them. You've got an alignment stick down, you've got a flag, and you just keep hitting shot after shot after shot on the driving range, and you kind of get into a groove. Uh, you don't get that out on the golf course. And so one of the things for the listeners out there I would really encourage you to do is to work on your pre-shot routine when you're on the driving range and then try to actually play golf on the driving range so that you can have that transition of what you're learning technically, because what you're learning technically from your instructor, whether it's your grip or ball position or anything that you're doing to change your golf swing is important. And there's a time for that, but there's also, you have to transition from that, what you're learning mechanically and transition that to the golf course. And so one way to, to kind of bridge that gap is to spend time you know, go to the range and say, I'm going to go to the range today, and I'm not going to focus on anything but, but playing golf, even though I'm on the driving range, and just play nine holes in your mind, you know, tee it up and play the first hole, and, and if you hit it off, you know, if you hit it down the middle of the fairway and you're, and you're 150 yards away from the green, you know, go to the club that you would use and, and play that way so that you're kind of getting yourself used to going through your routine, you know, checking your yardages, the wind, all the factors that you, 
that you would, uh, you know, be dealing with on the golf course. So I think that's a great way to, to prepare to then take what you're learning mechanically and then to be able to take it out on the golf course. And then the last thing that I would say on this is, is I'm a big believer in the timing of the golf swing. So what I do is I do, I'm always working on my count. Um, and what I mean by that is the time that it takes me to go back into the ball. And so that's one second. So I'm always doing a, a count where I'm one, two, you know, one, two. And I'm doing that in my head. So I'm not thinking so much about my mechanics. I'm thinking more about my tempo. Well said um, and literally hit it right on the mark. And that's really what I was looking for is, you know, obviously in, in realistic terms, you, you have to work on your swing. You know, you're always, I mean, the, the best players in the world are always working on their swing, but they pick the appropriate times to do that and not when they get out on the golf course and they're actually playing it around. They don't start tinkering and monkeying around, even if they're not playing at their best. Um, obviously, there may be some subtle changes from playing a lot they're able to, to make on the fly, but they're not making any drastic changes, and they're not really thinking about their golf swing uh, per se when they're out there. So I think that's a great way that you've put it to hopefully help people understand what I meant by that first uh, 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 course management tip. Uh, Jim, I'm going to come to you on this one here, and this is one that I think uh, a lot of pros certainly have adopted over the years, and that is really sort of developing an ability to work your way back on each hole. So instead of thinking from tee to green, we're now going to sort of change the, the mindset and work from green back to the tee. Um, there's a reason why that can be very effective if implemented correctly. Uh, give us your thoughts here. What do we need to be thinking about when we step up to that hole and we see, let's say it's a 435-yard par 4, what do we need to be focusing on here while we're adapting this new course management tip? Oh, uh, Jim, I'm not sure if you I apologize. heard that or I not. I apologize. I have my mute on. No, that's, <laughs> that's, go ahead. Did you, you hear the question okay, though? Yes, I did. Uh, and and uh, what I like to do is if, if, the, if the course permits and, the, and their time permits, to go out on the golf course and, and go backwards, in other words, ride the golf course backwards, go to the green, stand there and look out to the fairway down to the the T versus T to green. And you start to see areas where you can play your shots too and then reverse that process and go T to green trying to find those locations you saw from the green. And it helps a lot right around the green because you can see where is the easiest place if you happen to miss the green, where can you get it up and down from. Uh, I know at the golf course I'm at, probably 20 out of the 27 holes, if you're over the green, it's an easier up and down than if you're short of the green. And so you learn where you can go and maybe be a little bit longer and that sort of a thing. So I yeah, like and, to look and at a, it from – go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, finish your thought. Uh, I, I like to look at it some from from where I'm headed and then go back and head there, if you will. Yeah, and that's a, a great uh, a great point as well. And and I like the fact, again, obviously, um, you know, usually you can work something out maybe later in the day when it's not as busy, um, before, uh, maybe the day before you're going to play. 
is to, to uh, or or even during the day if, if uh, again you're not interfering with anybody but to drive back from green to tea and uh, on the course and kind of get a, a lay of the land because it, it does look a lot different you know if you ever you know for some of the amateurs out there and i'm sure we've all experienced this um when we played but if you ever get out there whether you're in the fairway or on the green and you look back the hole it looks a lot different i mean it looks completely yeah. different and there's things that you don't notice, as you pointed out, um, sometimes from the tee. Sometimes the undulation of the fairway can, can confuse the eye a little bit. And maybe a landing area that maybe from the tee doesn't look so big suddenly looks a lot wider and more forgiving when you look at from the greens perspective. So I think that's a great point. And, again, whenever possible, I agree with you. I think if you can get out there and kind of drive backwards through the course, gives you a better understanding of what the holes look like from that perspective as well. And it may help you in some of your decision-making when you get back on the tee. So a uh, great, great point. Um, John, uh, on this one here, uh, I'm going to come back to you on. And, and this sort of, from what Jim just mentioned, kind of helps with a little uh, of this as well. And that is to really know the course, really familiarize with the course, where the hazards and some of the tr- potential troubles might be. Uh, this is an important part of course management as well, right? No doubt about it. The, you know, the first thing that I do, like if I go to a, a golf course for the first time, let's say that I'm going to play in a, in a tournament there and I want to go play a practice round. The first thing that I do when I get to the, to the golf course is, I, you know, obviously want to know the speed of the greens and kind of the layout, maybe look at it online if you can to get an idea and feel for it. But it's important that when you get there, uh, the, on each hole, you figure out where you can't go. In other words, when you're standing on the tee, you know, you say, okay, on this hole, I cannot go right or I cannot miss it left uh, because of water out of bounds, whatever it is. And then by, by doing that, you kind of set your game plan from there. And so I think that's, a, that's very important when you're looking at, at, a, at any hole, and especially when you're not swinging well. You know, it's a lot easier to play golf, obviously, when you're playing well. When I'm hitting the ball well, it's amazing how I don't see nearly as much of the problems out there on the golf course than when I'm not hitting it well. And what good players will do, because if you're in the middle of a round and you're not hitting it well, you still have to finish that round. So what you have to do is you have to be able to, to take trouble out of play. And a simple way to do this, for example, is if you stand on the tee box and the trouble is on the right-hand side of the tee excuse me, on the right-hand side of the hole, you want to tee it up on the right-hand side of the tee box. And by doing that, you can aim, you can get your body to aim more down the left-hand side. If you stand on a, on a, a tee box and the trouble is on the left-hand side, then teeing up on the left-hand side will help eliminate the left side, will get you to aim more of the right side. It, basically, by teeing up on the left, you open up the right. By teeing up on the right, you open up the left side. And so those are simple ways that you can, you know, avoid trouble. Then knowing your, um, when you're out there on the golf course, knowing on your par fives especially, your layup, you know, where you want to lay up, um, that's something that's important as well because a lot of times the architects will put trouble in those layup areas. They'll have these bunkers mm-hmm. that are, you know, 40 or 50 yards away from the green. And, um, you know, a lot of players make the mistake when they're out there on the par fives, oh, I'm just going to hit my three wood down there and get as close as I can to the green. 
and then they get in one of these bunkers and they've got a 40 or 50 yard bunker shot, which is just, you're dead. If you're in that kind of position, you're not going to, you're going to be, you know, just trying to get out and go from there. So knowing, okay, I don't want to try to push it down there and give myself a 50 yard bunker shot. I'm going to lay it back to a hundred or 120 or 130, whatever it is so that you can, eliminate that so good players will eliminate a lot of the trouble just in their course management skills so that's why if you see a tour player in 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 trouble it's because they've made a bad swing it's not because they've made usually made a, a course management mistake because they know the golf course they have a caddy there and they're smart enough to know you know okay i'm not playing my a game today i'm going to miss it instead of like Jim was saying, you know, I'm on this hole, I'm going to miss it long because I'm going to have an easier up and down. So those are examples of ways that players can uh, avoid high numbers on the golf course when they're, especially when they're not swinging well, just through course management. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and Jim, this is uh, uh, this next one here is, is one, um, you know, with, with the advancement of technology, uh, particularly nowadays. Uh, it's gotten so good, the GPS devices. So, you know, there's really no excuse um, while using this to not know your yardages, not just to the pin, but to the front of the green, to the back of the green. I mean, the, these laser range finders, for instance, are so accurate now um, and so easy to, to set up and use that they give us a wealth of information. So, uh, and, and most, I won't say all, but a good many tournaments now uh, are certainly allowing you to use them uh, even in tournament play. They're starting to open that up uh, quite a bit. So um, give us the, the scoop on that. Uh, GPS, how can we make that our friend? Well, you know, there, many golf, cor- golf carts have the GPS, and even to the point where you can touch the screen and find out exactly how far you are perhaps to a, a pond or a bunker, and there's apps for your phone that, that that can do the same thing. And so you could stand on the tee and look at your phone and point to where the water is on the GPS and know that it's maybe uh, 220 yards. Well, if your driver goes 230, now you just brought that into play. So you may look at it and say, you know what, I'm going to hit this 200. And so instead of having, say, uh, 140 into the green, you might have 170, but you've taken that water completely out of out of play, and and it's not an a hazard to you because uh, you can't get to that by hitting a club that lays you back that extra yardage. So it's it they are wonderful tools to to give you decisions, and and we've got to go back to the idea. I think we talked about this in a in a previous uh, <clears throat> show. And that is that golf is a game of hitting your golf ball a certain distance at a certain target. And so it's not that maximum distance all the time. And so using mm-hmm. that GPS, you can stand there in the fairway on a par five and go, okay, I am now 230 yards. And my three wood goes 210 yards. Well, it's a two-shot situation now. You're never going to get it 230. So let's look at it and divide it up in a way that you know you have a great chance to hit good shots and those shots are going to go into a place that an obstacle or a hazard isn't in the way. 
as John mentioned, you know, you maybe you're going to lay it before you get to that bunker, and now you have 110 versus trying to get it up there as close as you can, and now you bring those hazards in, and that's where big numbers come from. So it's a great tool to have to be able to determine how far do I need to hit this shot at which target. Yeah, and uh, again, some great points. And, and the other thing, too, is that I want to mention about some of these, uh, and again, you can add other you know, apps and that in there, as, as you mentioned, Jim. Um, but what's really unique about some of the current uh, technology out there is the ability to actually record your stats. So, for instance, there's different devices out there that can, whether through the app or through some other technology, um, when you're on the golf course, uh, so as you're playing various different rounds, it's recording that. And what's really nice about it is a lot of these new apps will actually, if you get in a situation, let's say you've got 150 yards, um, based on your history, now it may not necessarily be applicable for that particular day because obviously it's a new day, but it can give you an approximate um, idea of what club selection to use as well. So there's a lot of benefits to that technology when used properly, but you've got to take full advantage of it, um, you know, leading up to that so that when it's there, it's giving you not just the information of the yardages as we've discussed, but it's giving you other valuable information, uh, possibly club selection and whatnot, uh, or recommendations, if you will, uh, based on past track records. So whenever possible, if you're using that technology, make sure you understand it. Speak to your pro, and if your pros, uh, maybe it's something a little bit newer technology that they're not familiar with, uh, maybe together you guys can investigate it and make uh, use of it because uh, it, it's an ever-changing world, and this technology is there to help you um, when used properly. So I think it's, uh, it, it's a, great, uh, a great opportunity and a great tool to use to add to that uh, course management uh, side of things. Um, John, this one, I know we've, we've kind of uh, touched on this a, a little bit already tonight, um, so I think I'm just going to pass by. But, you know, off, off the tee, um, you know, obviously the tee shot is one that sort of sets the tone of the hole. Uh, if we have a good tee shot, we put it in the position, the place, uh, the distance that we want, um, you know, then that's going to help set us up for our next shot. Um, any Anything you want to add to that? Well, as far as course management goes, I, I want the listeners out there to understand that you don't always have to hit the driver off the tee, especially on par fours and even par fives. Um, <clears throat> I, have the, I, I have a story for, with a, a kid that I work with who's, who was in the eighth grade, and, you know, most eighth graders, um, they're, you know, just like most uh, adults, want to hit the driver as far as they can. When we were playing a hole that was a, a hole that he can't get physically get it there in two shots, even if he hit his very best two shots, and he came walking up on the tee box, and he had a five-wood. And uh, I kind of looked at him, and I said, I said, why are you hitting a five-wood? And um, he said, well, it's my favorite club. And I was like, all right, you know, but this is a long hole. But he said, I can't get it there in two shots, so I might as well get the ball in play, then hit a second shot, and then leave it for my wedge, which he loves, the 100-yard wedge shot. And so I thought for an eighth grader, that's pretty darn uh, good because most, uh, most uh, kids would never have the, the forethought to think about breaking a hole down like that. And, and I was really amazed with his maturity. And so we can all learn from that. Um, a lot of times on par five, if I get on a par five, especially when I was pay, playing competitively, if I got on a par five that was 
650 yards where I knew that there was no way I could get there in two shots, what I would do a lot of times is I would hit three wood off the tee because I felt more comfortable with my three wood than I did my driver, especially if the hole had some trouble that, or the hole didn't set up to my eye. So, you know, breaking the hole down, if you have a hybrid or you have a seven wood or five wood or something like that, and you're not swinging well, or it's a hole that maybe it's going to take you three shots to get there anyway, um, you know, that, I, that's a great way to play. You don't always have to hit driver off the tee. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is just just want to add to, to what you said about the player. Uh, for somebody that young to have that, you know, the, the wherewithal to understand that, and you're right. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of our older, even senior golfers, not uh, still haven't learned to put the ego, uh, you know, leave it back at the pro shop or what have you, and or in the car and and deal with it when you get back. But um, that's some some great uh, a great uh, advice to to give um, is to you know really focus on, you know, how can I best play this hole? What's going to give me uh, yield the highest uh, result and best result that I'm looking for? rather than just letting ego play uh, in, in a factor here. Um, Jim, this is one here that I think uh, can, can have some interesting uh, feedback on, and that is um, really to, to be able to use the green to your advantage. You know, a lot of players, uh, you know, much like they do with the driver, um, get it in their mind, I'm just going to go for this pin, but sometimes based on the, the undulation of the green and how the pin's set up, that may not be the, the best course of action. Give us some thoughts here on, how we can use a green uh, to our advantage when we're playing a hole. Well, I think you have to first look at your skill set. And uh, at a certain level of skill, uh, the middle of the green is is really the target they should be going for, regardless of whether the flag is to the right, to the left, to the back, or to the front. Uh, most greens, if you walked out there and stood precisely in the middle, most greens you would find that if your ball was there in the middle, you would have no more than a 35-foot putt to any hole location on that green. So at, at a certain skill level, that needs to be our, our decision. Now, when that, ball, that flag becomes one in the front or the back versus the middle, and let's say we're a better player, now we need to decide where we want to be relative to that flag. And I advise on most occasions that if, let's say, for example, the flag is in the front and it's 120 yards from where you're hitting, you may want to play that 105 yards. I'm sorry, 125. So you add five yards to it, so now you've put it 15 feet past the hole. Then if you happen to hit it not precise, it's still okay. And then if you put the flag in the back of the green, and perhaps it's 140 yards to that flag, maybe you're going to go at 135 because there's a big drop-off behind that green and it's really difficult up and down. So now we'll leave it five yards short of that flag. And if you happen to put it there, you're only 15 feet away from the hole. So we can uh, decide where our yardage should be based on that flag being front or back. And the other thing, if that ball, that flag is tucked to the right and you hit towards the middle and that ball happens to drift a little bit to the right, you look like a hero. But if you hit it to the middle and you've got maybe a 20-foot putt. Uh, so that middle area of the green is 
really uh, for many and most players uh, what you want to be shooting for. Yeah, and, and again, some great uh, great points. And, and also, too, by, by going for the middle of the green, a lot of times, depending on how the green is, is you know, the, as I said, the undulations, you're usually pretty safe. Because even if it, um, I mean, I've even seen some greenskeepers where they'll, if there's a, you know, a slope right from the middle, let's say, to the front, I've even seen some nasty greenkeepers uh, actually put that pin right on top of that shelf right near where that, where that, uh, you know, that undulation happens so that, you know, you've either got to hit it on top or you've got to hit it just below. But if you try to go for the pin, it'll just feed right back to the front and sometimes even roll off the green. So um, yeah, playing by the, you know, playing by that analogy of of sort of going for the center of the green, uh, again, gives you more uh, room for error in the event. If, like you said, if you leak a little bit right or left, depending on your, your uh, situation, it still gives you uh, plenty of green in most cases to work with, and um, you know it, it certainly increases the likelihood of you getting, uh, uh, you know, either maybe potentially uh, getting a birdie or or at least saving par. So it's uh, definitely some some words to live by. Um, John, another aspect, sort of feeding along the same uh, uh, area of the greens, and that is, um, as we all know, you don't always make it on the green. Um, every time and uh but you need to have to be able to work around the greens. so learning to work around the greens obviously uh short pitch shots chip shots that sort of thing that's something that we really need to work on uh, i think all times because again we're not going to hit every green uh give us uh, your your uh, thoughts here well i think that you know for for me i i believe and i've all i've been taught and i think most uh instructors would agree with me that it's it's always easier to play the ball low than it is high. And so to me, chipping is kind of the lost art in today's game of golf. It seems like um, everybody wants to grab their lob wedge or their sand wedge. Everyone wants to fly the ball to the hole, um, which is a very difficult way to play all your shots. Now, obviously, if I've got to go over a bunker, I've got to use a lob wedge or a sand wedge. I'm not going to use a seven iron to hit a short you know, shot over a bunker in that situation. But let's say that there's no obstacle in front of us and we're not in the primary rough, okay? So if we're not in those situations, it's always easier to hit the low shot. And learning how to hit a low uh, pitch and run or a low chip shot um, or to lower, you know, the trajectory of a sand wedge so it's, it's coming in and hitting and kind of releasing, that, that is a very um, important part of the game to work on because – um, you can't always putt from off the green. I know a lot of listeners out there will just simply pull their putter out. But you don't want to be putting, you know, in, in most cases if you're in the intermediate rough and you've got a, a lot of things in front of you, you know, sprinkler heads, things like that. It's, you, you've got to learn how to hit different shots. So I'm always a big believer when you're practicing is that you put yourself in situations yeah, you want to practice the the shots over the bunker and things like that. But you also want to practice the shots I call the vanilla shots, the real basic shots where you're, you're two or three yards off of the green. You've got, you know, 25 to 30 feet of green to work with. I see more people I see more people practicing the difficult shots and they don't practice the 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 vanilla shots, the real basic shots. And if you think about it statistically, 
if you put me and I've got to hit a flock shot or a pitch shot over a bunker, I'm not expecting to get that up and down. I'm trying to get it down in three shots. But if you put me three or four yards off the green and you give me 25 or 30 feet of green to work with, now my expectations change. And so what frustrates me as a player is when I, I can't hit those real basic easy shots well because I haven't been working on them. So I think that's something that I, I would challenge all of the listeners out there to do is to try to put time into working on those real basic shots, learning how to use pitching wedges, nine irons, eight irons, where you've got some shots where you just pitch it on the green and you let it release 20, 30, 40, 50 feet, depending on the situation, learning how to use different clubs. I think that is a great way to spend your time. I don't see enough of that when I look at, when I go out to our our club and and when I go to other clubs, I don't see that. I see people either just putting or they're hitting the high shots. They're not hitting the lower shots. And in my opinion, that's something that would really help a lot of players out there. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Well said. Um, and, and I'm just going to add this in real quick, and then, um, Jim, I'll move on to the next one. I think, too, for uh, mainly for our uh, really any player, but particularly our high handicappers, is you want to avoid uh, the short side of the green. And, and what we mean by that is that's the, the part of the green that's closest to the pin. So if the, if the pin is cut, say, close to the right side uh, of the green, that's that little patch of green from the right side to where the pin is. And it doesn't give you a lot of room, especially even with your working with your chip shots and things like that. It doesn't give you a lot of green to work with. So whenever possible, if you see a pin that's cut, um, you know, real close to one side or the other, um, you want to avoid that short side because that's not going to give you a lot to, to work with. And this sort of defaults back to, Jim, what you were talking about earlier, and that is really sort of using the green to your advantage. So I just wanted to throw that in there so we can sort of wrap that up, uh, talking about around the green. Um, avoiding the short side is, is going to make things a little bit easier for you as well. So, Jim, I'm going to give you this one here. And, uh, again, I just want to uh, clarify a couple things just so that we make sure everybody understands. Uh, I think another thing, too, is in, in preparation for part of our course management is we want to think two shots ahead. So, for an example, if we're playing on a par five, we want to think about the uh, next shot and even the shot after that may make a, a different decision in what we're going to do now. And that doesn't mean that we don't stay in the moment and worry about the particular shot at hand, but we want to be conscious of what it is we want to do. So maybe you can sort of talk a little bit more about that and, and what I mean by thinking sort of two shots ahead. Yeah, I think we have to look, uh, and I always go back to our skill set. What, what is our skill? What can we do? And, uh, and sometimes I like to break down that whole say, okay, this is a hole that I can hit this golf ball two times and get to the green. And now I need to make the decision, and again, going back to the GPS, I can make the decision where should that first one be so that I'm set up to hit the next one to the middle of the green. And so now i am already planned how I'm going to hit it to the middle of the green, which now is setting me up to have a good putt at a birdie. But now if I'm a a person that I get to that par four hole and my skill set is such that it's going to take me three hits to get to that green, I can't get there in two, now I'm going to take that yardage and I'm going to divide it by three. And so now I'm going to make the decision, okay, what do I want to have as a distance 
to hit onto the green. And perhaps I want that to be 100 yards, and I'm on a 400-yard hole. Well, that means I've got to hit two shots, 300 yards to get to 100 for my last shot to the green. Now I have to make my plan around getting to that 100 yards to the green. And so it always comes back to your skill set. You know, the better players, we're looking at it that way on a par five. Uh, The higher handicap, maybe we're looking at it that way on a par four. And even all the way back to a par three, uh, depending on our skill, we may be talking to ourselves saying, you know what, this is a long par three. It's 200 yards. And my absolute very best three wood goes 200 yards. Well, maybe I Mm -hmm. ought to hit a couple shots 100 yards and get to that green and make sure that I have a chance at par or, at worst, two-putt for a bogey. Yeah, and, and, and again, it all, you know, comes back to this course management. You know, what's always really interesting is, you know, when you see guys like um, Jack Nicholas in, in his day and, and obviously Tiger, um, you know, they certainly didn't hit every shot perfectly, but their course management and how they handled themselves around the golf course made up for a myriad of, of you know, uh, issues that they may have, you know, arisen in a round. And uh, whether it was a poor putt or, or what have you, or uh, miscalation, which didn't happen as much as what you might think, but they were always prepared um, with whatever they're doing. And they're always thinking, you know, uh, when you listen to them explaining, you know, what they were doing on a particular hole, um, they would always talk about, you know, I was thinking this, and that's why I put myself in this position. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that I got up and down and, you know, or whatever the case was. So they were always thinking ahead. Um, but then they would focus on the shot at hand when it came down to it. But they always knew uh, or had a game plan, if you will, as to how they were going to play that particular hole. And that's why they were both so successful in their careers. And they did it better, really, than, than most of the other golfers out on tour. Um, John, this is another one, too. And, and this sort of plays in with uh, the, the course conditions. I'm not talking so much about bunkers, uh, per se, or, or, or that, um, or hazards. We've, we've touched on that. But depending on where you're playing, whether you're playing in Florida, maybe out in Arizona where Jim is, or up where you are up in Ohio, you're playing different course conditions. So that has to be an important factor as well when you're sort of deciding how you're going to play that particular course and as you develop a, a, a golf course strategy, or a management strategy uh, for that particular round. Touch on that a little bit. I think there's some uh, things that uh, people need to consider about the course conditions. Well, course conditions are very important. For example, if you are, uh, if you like to travel, uh, you know, like for example, a lot of our people that live here in Ohio, obviously they winter either uh, down in Florida or they vacation out in California, Arizona, places like that. If you're traveling to different parts of the country and playing on different grasses than you're used to, um, you know, course conditions can be totally different. You see this all the time. Uh, when with with uh, players who who really you know again like to get out and play different courses. So the first thing that I do is I go to the practice green because the practice green will give me an idea of the speed of the green. So the first thing I ask myself when I get there is I'll hit some long lag putts. I'll get 30 feet from the fringe and I'll just try to roll the ball to the fringe. I try to find a relatively level part of the green and I just try to roll balls to the fringe. And then I ask myself, these greens are going to be either, you know, faster or slower than what I'm used to. 
in most cases. Very rarely are they just the same. They're always a little bit different. And that's going to dictate a lot of what goes on during my round. For example, if I get there and the greens are faster, I am going to put more of a premium on staying below the hole. So that's going to be very important to me when I'm chipping, when I'm uh, hitting pitch shots, approach shots. I'm going to make sure that I'm not leaving myself a lot of downhill putts. I'm going to do the best I can with that. Other course conditions could be you could get to the golf course at your home course and it could be drizzling. Well, the greens are going to be slower. The golf course is going to play longer. You know, if it's cart path only, you, you know that you're going to be in for a long day out there on the golf course. You're going, to, you're going to have to play a lot smarter. You're going to have to realize that maybe you're not going to hit as many greens. You're not going to hit it as far. If it's cart path only, I can promise you, you're not going to hit it as far as you would if it was a really dry day. If it's windy, things, you know, wind is, to me, the most difficult thing to play in. Wind and cold are the two that I can't stand the, the most when they're really extreme. Because, you know, if it's colder, your ball's not going to go as far. If it's windy, you've got to understand that maybe a wind that's blowing left to right, and if you have a fade, it's going to turn your fade into a slice. So you've got all kind of conditions that, that you can deal with. And you can never, you can never prepare for all of them because in, in golf, things happen, weather changes. But weather is such a big part of golf. And, you know, depending on the weather in the morning can be totally different than the weather in the afternoon. So learning and having the experience to know that when these conditions happen, when it's cold or when it's windy or when it's wet, you're going to lose distance in a lot of cases. When it's dry and when the ground's hard and firm, you're going to gain distance. The ball might roll into places you've never been before on the golf course. So that's where the experience factor comes in. And and so it's important that when when you're playing the golf course, I start with the putting green. The putting green speed tells me everything that, that hopefully tells me what I'm going to be dealing with when I get out on the golf course. Yeah, I, I think, to you know, it's great to, to go out and, and do a warm-up, which is important, but it's also an opportunity, and I'm talking about before you round, I'm not talking about a, a sort of a full-blown practice session, but if you're, if you're getting ready to play, that's why I always like for people to show up you know, at a good time. Obviously, sometimes there are situations where it's a last-minute decision to get out and maybe play a quick nine, um, so you may not have the luxury. But if you know ahead of time, let's say you're playing this Saturday, you know you're going to be going there, and you've gotten all your, your chores, you know, your spouse has given you all the, the work, maybe try to do it Friday night so you can get out a little uh, earlier on the golf course and give your chance to really assess the situation, get an idea of what the wind is, is going to be like for that day. You know, don't always listen to the weatherman because sometimes, you know, as we know, they're wrong. Um, but if it's, as you said, if it's been drizzling and that, and, and just give yourself a few minutes while you're warming up to kind of assess the situation um, on the green and, and also just, you know, um, how the ball is handling itself when you're hitting it out into the range, you know, is it just sort of plug in real quick or is it getting some balance? Maybe the, the gr- ground is dry and hard, um, you know, and, and uh, depending on where you're playing, um, you know, that could be factored in. So those are things that you need to understand. Um, Jim, this is one here that, I think that I could really put this in two categories, and that is to have a yardage you can hit uh, confidently. Um, I like to call this sometimes, too, a go-to shot. You know, a lot of times maybe our full swing is, uh, you know, with a driver is not our best, and, you know, we can certainly scale back. But sometimes I like to have a go-to shot where I know the exact yardage I'm going to hit with a specific club. If I need to to keep it in play, you know, a lot of times uh, Tiger had that with his two-iron, a stinger. Um, you know, if he wanted to play certain holes, he would do that. 
Um, I think that's a good idea. What are your thoughts here? And is this something, again, obviously it falls into skill level, but I think this is something that all levels can, can work on over time to develop a sort of a go-to uh, shot where they can hit confidently uh, specific yardage. Well, I think it's uh, important to look at that kind of in, in a couple ways. One, what is your go-to favorite, if you will, yardage going into the green? Uh, what do I do my best with? Is that a 100-yard shot? Is that a 70-yard shot? Is that 120? And so to, to know that, then we can make our plan from the tee to that area to get to that go-to yardage into the green uh, so I have my confidence and my success rate is elevated. Uh, but now going back to off of the tee, we need to look at it and say, okay, what club is it? The, the idea of the tee shot is to hit the ball as far down the fairway as we can. The, the key there is down the fairway. And if that for you is uh, you've got a very narrow uh, situation, you've got trees on the left and water on the right, now you may be saying, you know what? My five iron I know is going to go into that location. I can get that into the middle of the fairway. Well, that five iron might leave me with uh, a, two more shots to get to the green. Well, that's a whole lot better than trying that driver and hitting it into the water, taking a penalty and then hitting another one because now you're frustrated. You lost the ball. You've added a shot, mm -hmm. and now you probably don't perform as well. So having that no like you said, Tiger had the two-iron stinger. Uh, have that club that you know you can put in the fairway no matter what, I think, is very important. And, and you need to understand that and how far that shot goes. Yeah, and, and, and that's exactly what I was getting at. I think that a lot of people, you know, sort of second-guess um, their play. They don't really have that. Uh, and, and that's I, I call that that sort of, um, special club in the bag, uh, and it might be any club. It's not, uh, you know, necessarily uh, one specific iron, but it's a go-to shot that whenever you're in a tight spot, you can play that shot with confidence, get yourself in fairway, or put yourself to that uh, yardage that you need to be at. And, you know, I, I see so many people wasting time, you know, on the range. Um, you know, I'm going to try, to, weather permitting, I'm going to try to get up this weekend myself and just, you know, hit some balls and you know, when I do that, I always like to look up and down the range and just kind of see what people are doing. And it's amazing how, you know, um, I, what I don't see is this. Um, and, and I know we've talked about this many times. I don't see anybody going through their pre-shot routine, almost nobody. Um, maybe a few juniors, if they're up there getting ready to play for an event, um, you know, coming up, they'll be working on all aspects. But I don't see them working on their pre-shot routine. I don't see them taking time between each shot, uh, not just to go through the routine, but just to give themselves a break. They're just you know, raking and hitting, raking and hitting. So, you know, I, I like to see people working on things that they don't normally work on all the time because you never know what you might need out in the golf course. It's, it's a mixed bag. And um, there's a club for, for every shot and every situation out there, but you have to be able to put a little thought into it, and that falls into um, what we're talking about here tonight. And the last one, John, um, and I think this sort of sums up everything we've been talking about, and that is to really play to your strengths. Uh, give us your final thoughts on that, and then, uh, Jim, I'll allow you to also uh, any, uh, any final thoughts, and then I'll close it out. Well, 
I think that that's a that is that's a great uh, point. Knowing your strengths. First of all, you have to know your strengths, and so the best way to know your strengths is by keeping your stats. Knowing if you're, you know, what your stats are, how good you are from say 100 yards, and then having that go-to yardage like Jim was talking about, having that that would be one thing. Knowing whether you're, you know, pitching or chipping, you know, all of these factors that you have in the short game knowing where your strengths are so that when the pen is on the right-hand side of the, the green and you have no green to work with, if you're not, and there's a bunker over there, if you're not a good bunker player, you've got to make sure and keep that ball left of the hole. You can't run the risk of short-siding yourself and, and going in that. So knowing how to play around the trouble. Uh, you know, in golf with beginners, we teach beginners to go around trouble. The better you get as a, as a golfer, the more you go over trouble. Uh, but even tour players will go around trouble, especially when they're out of position off the tee. They haven't hit an ideal tee shot, um, so they know how to get, go around the trouble in those situations. And then knowing your strengths off the tee. I think off the tee is the one area that everyone has to have a firm grasp of what they're good with. They have to have confidence that the driver or the three-wood or the four-wood, whatever it is that you tee off with or the hybrid on the really tight holes, uh, that you know that when you put that in your hands, that you have the confidence that you can get the ball in play. And I've always said the number one objective is to get the ball in play when you're off the tee. You want to get it in play. You want to get it as far down the fairway as possible. So those are all things that you can do in playing towards your strengths. Well said. And, and Jim, final thought I, uh, you know, I guess point I want you to t- touch on a little bit is is for those golfers, and, and there are many of them out there who, you know, are going to wake up uh, maybe this weekend and are excited to, to get out in the golf course with their buddies and play and, um, you know, beautiful sunny day hopefully and, and the weather conditions are perfect. And they show up there and during their warm-up session, um, suddenly the wheels have just sort of fallen off the bus. They just don't have their um, A game, B game hasn't shown up, and even their C game is not there. And, and really they have two choices. Uh, they can bail out on their friends and just, you know, go back home and, and, uh, and you know, wait for the next time. Um, or um, maybe they can do what? If, if they're not playing at their best, how can they adapt to what they, the game that they've got? What can they do? What are some things that, that you could advise a golfer that runs into that scenario? Because I guarantee it there's going to be a few of them this weekend coming up. Well, I think what happens so often when when it's just not working in warm-up is we get very uh, in, involved in how do I swing this to make myself hit it better. And, and on contrary to that, we actually do a better job if we step back, take a breath, and go into our routine and think about the target. So, for example, if you were throwing, if we were playing catch with a ball, we wouldn't necessarily be thinking about how we're going to release our wrists and fingers as we toss the ball to each other. We need to play golf that way. And if if the golf swing isn't quite working, if we can get channeled into and focused into the target where I want to make this ball go, it's amazing how our body will start to make that happen. And then what we may need to do is back ourselves down, everybody. As as John was saying, uh, the young man, the eighth grader, uh, had his favorite club, the five wood. Uh, go to that favorite club on the range. 
but focus on the target, not on the actions. Uh, and you'll they'll be amazed at how the actions start to evolve and become what you want. And on that range, I would put that ball on a tee in a good position and just, again, start focusing on where I want the ball to go. Now, when they now go to the golf course, they have to have a mindset that I'm not going to be so focused on my technique. I may have a swing thought in pre-shot routine in a rehearsal swing, but when I get ready to hit, I've got to get to where I'm going to hit to the target. And we may be more conservative on our decisions. As John said, we've got to hit that ball and play off the tee. Well, what today is going to get my ball in play? Who knows? Maybe that's a seven iron to get it off the tee and in play. And as they start seeing the ball uh, perform and they get it into play, their confidence comes, their skill comes. They can rely more on the target. And it's kind of a snowball effect to recover by thinking, I want it to go there. Let me see how I can make it go there. Versus, I need to have my club in this position at this point in my golf swing in order to make it go there. Get target-oriented when it's when you struggle a lot. Perhaps a swing thought in re- routine, but stay in the target when they hit and be conservative when they go play. Again, some very uh, great poignant uh, uh things to to help golfers to become better um and you know going to the very first point we talked about you know not always working on your swing um developing you know a a good course management strategy is going to help you overcome uh, a lot of obstacles that you may be faced with i mean it's very tempting obviously um you know to try and bomb uh, it off the tee every time uh, but that's usually not the best way to play golf I think having a good course management strategy is extremely important, especially if, uh, for you beginners out there or those of you that are still maybe struggling to shoot below 100. Um, if you're not breaking 100, um, you know, you can work on your swing all day long, but if you don't have a good strategy out there in the golf course, and I think the best way to really improve at golf is to first build your confidence and mental game. Um, you know, remembering golf is is really about consistency and minimizing as many variables as possible. So having a solid and repeatable plan for how you tackle uh, a course is how you get better. And uh, by doing that, you'll enjoy the game a lot more, even when you're not striking every shot as pure as you'd like. So um, guys, some great, uh, great discussion tonight. I think we hit uh, everything uh, on the mark and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll help a few golfers out there. And for those of you that are listening live, um, Obviously, we got a little bit more show to go here another hour, but what I would recommend is if you join in late or you want to hear those again, uh, you can go to blogtalkradio.com slash golftalklive, and at the end of the show, the recorded version will be there, and you can listen to that first half uh, that we've just done uh, and pick up some of those points again if you missed uh, some of them or you want to hear them again. Uh, I strongly suggest you do that because there's some good uh, information in there for everybody to pick up on uh, to manage your game a little bit better on the golf course. Uh, guys, as always, you did a, a great job. I appreciate uh, giving of your time, and, and as I always do, give each of you an opportunity to um, not only let the folks know the best way they can reach out, uh, but also if there's anything quickly that you'd like to plug as well coming up, uh, by all means, go ahead. Uh, John, you go first. 
Well, Ted, thanks again for having me on the show. And, uh, Jim, I really enjoyed uh, being on tonight's uh, episode with you. For the listeners out there, uh, one of the best ways to connect with me is to go to my website, DeckerGolf.com. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. Um, My book, Golf Is My Life, Glorifying God Through the Game, is available on Amazon Audible. It's an Audible book now as well. Purchase it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart.com. And I've got a second book that I will be – Hopefully, we'll be out sometime next year, and it's going to be called Fairways to Heaven, One Shot at a Time, so I'm real excited about that. And I really enjoy working with uh, Golf Tips Magazine, and and you can also uh, I do a lot of instructional videos and articles for the magazine, and also my Fairways to Heaven uh, article is on the, in the magazine as well. So if you're a, hopefully a Golf Tips Magazine subscriber, you can go on and, and keep up with me there as well. And if, you, if you're interested in uh, having me come as a public speaker, I do public speaking. I can do it at your golf course, your church, um, juniors, things uh, along those lines. So uh, golf outings, I've done a lot of those uh, through my career and would enjoy coming to your community and, and uh, hopefully uh, offering something maybe unique that you haven't done in the past. But, Ted, thanks again for all that you do for us, giving us this platform, and I uh, really appreciate it. And, uh, Jim, I hope your son plays well. And, um, and and the team does well uh, this uh, during the tournament. Thanks so much, Thank John. You. And yes, it was a, it was great to be on on with you as well, John. Uh, this I think it was our first show together. And uh, <clears throat> for those listeners who would like to reach out to me, you can reach me via email at jim at indicottgolf.com or on my website at royalstcloudacademy.com. And, Ted, as always, thank you so much for having me a part of this, and uh, I look forward to future shows. Uh, do as well. Thank you both, uh, again, for always giving of your time and always bringing your best to the panel uh, discussions. And uh, I concur uh, with John uh, in, in uh, uh, encouraging your, your son and the team to get out there and, and have a great uh, event uh, and obviously um, get to spend some quality time uh, with his dad. So, uh Uh, Jim, thank you very much, and John as well, and I'll see you guys next time on the Coach's Corner panel. Have a great weekend, guys. Thank you. Take care. All right, that was John Decker and Jim Endicott uh, joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, We're going to take a quick break as we wait for our special guest, Terry Kohler, uh, Chairman and Director of Innovation at Edison Golf, is going to be joining me here in just a a moment or two. Uh, But in the meantime, Uh, Speaking of Golf Tips Magazine, here's a quick message uh, on how you can subscribe and what you can get. The following ad is sponsored by Golf Tips Magazine. Are you tired of being short off the tee? And what about those three putts? Forget about it. It's time you got serious about your game. Golf Tips, the most in-depth magazine in the industry. For over 30 years, Golf Tips has delivered expert content such as the latest golf instruction from America's top pros, Simple to follow practice and game improvement drills, fitness and mental game tips, equipment, training aids, accessory and apparel reviews, golf destinations and travel tips for every budget, and so much more. Don't miss a single issue. Go to GolfTipsMag.com and subscribe today. All right, welcome back, and I'm excited to be joined by tonight's guest, first time on the show. 
and I'll give them a quick introduction and then we'll get them out here and we've got lots to talk about tonight. So um, my special guest this evening is Terry Kohler, as I mentioned. He's the Chairman and Director of Innovation at Edison Golf. Uh, he's been uh, for over 30 years. He's uh, focused his design energies on the needs of uh, recreational golfers, not tour professionals. Uh, and if you've been fortunate enough to play Wedges or Irons by Reed Lockhart, uh, Eidolon, Score, or most recently uh, the Ben Hogan TK Wedges and Fort, uh, Fort Worth excuse me, Irons, uh, then you know his work. Uh, since 92, uh, his patented uh, Kohler Soul was the first and still the only wedge sole to combine both a high and low bounce into each wedge to make them versatile from any kind of lie and any swing pass. So please welcome uh, this evening's guest, Terry Kohler. Good evening, Terry. Welcome to Golf Talk Live. Hi, Ted. It's very nice to be here with you tonight. Well, I appreciate you taking time out of your evening and uh, to join me, and uh, I'm looking forward to tonight's discussion, learning a little bit more about Edison and uh, some of the great uh, wedges that uh, you've been putting together for the last uh, uh, several years. Um, before we get into that, though, what I want to talk about just for a few moments is just a little bit about not so much your, your, your business background as far as um, in the golfing industry, but how you, how you sort of first came about. I like to do that with first-time guests. Just sort of how did you first get introduced to the game and uh, talk a little bit about your journey and uh, what you found uh, to be uh, the most enjoyable part of golf? Well, I always tell people that I don't even remember life before golf. That I uh, was very blessed to grow <laughs> up in a family. Your your older audience members will appreciate it when I tell them uh, that I grew up in Mayberry with Ozzy and Harriet. So um, right. I had an idyllic, <laughs> idyllic childhood. Um, that little little small town in South Texas, that little nine-hole golf course, was the center uh, of a lot of what we did, and. Um, you know, the, there was very little golf on TV. This was in the in the 50s and 60s when I was uh, a youngster, and and um, mm. so we had our local stars and and uh, uh, Cliff Gifts and Charlie Papacek and these guys that could hit the ball a mile at the old Persimmon and Balada and and scored right. on those little nine-hole golf courses. And my dad was a very good player, and and uh, so I was just blessed to the learn the game from the time I could stand up and hold on to a golf club. Uh, I really don't remember never, uh, you know, not playing. I don't remember life before I was, you know, going around that golf course with a, with a two wood and a five iron and a, and a nine iron and a putter and, and, uh, uh my little bag and, and grew from there. And, uh, back then, even our little nine hole course had a PGA golf professional and, uh, Carl Gustafson or pro as we all called him, uh, shaped a bunch of us juniors, and I was with one of my high school buddies just the other day. We have belonged to the same club now in, at 70 years old, and we just we reminisced about how wonderful it was to grow up. Because that little nine-hole course was our personal playground, and um, there's still a lot of us that play, you know, mid-high single-digit golf in our uh, late mm -hmm. 60s and 70s because of the instruction we had. So it, it was a great blessing. Um, Kind of my orientation to the equipment, my dad was, was real big on whether it was our fishing or our bird hunting or our deer hunting or golf. It's really understanding, you know, how the tools work. We took our fishing reels apart, right. our golf clubs, we rewrap leather grips and we wax those persimmon heads and we clean those irons and scrub those grips. And um, so my dad was a believer in, in getting hugely immersed in whatever you do. And 
I guess that manifested in me as I was always a little kid that took my toys apart to see how they work. And uh, <laughs> most of the time I could get them back together. I guess I got better and better that. Um, so that was really my, my formative years. I was playing low single digit golf by the time I was 14 or 15. And, uh, and, and again, this was on little nine hole golf courses. I wasn't, uh, and, and I think I was really a blessing. I didn't grow up on a big fancy country club or whatever, but, uh, after college, I got a marketing degree and I, uh, tried a few things and, and, uh, ended up in the ad agency business and then started my own and, um, and I was in San Antonio, Texas, which was where the home of Ray Cook Putters was, and uh, went and made a sales call on them and got the Ray Cook Putter account, and um, that kind of launched me into into the golf industry. And uh, I would spend more time in the back of the shop, you know, seeing why they did things than um, than I probably should have as the ad guy. But it, it was a learning thing for me. And then I was very blessed to meet a lot of wonderful craftsmen from you know, the, the 70s and 80s and uh, that era of golf equipment before, you know, CAD design and before launch monitors when it was pretty much seat of the pants and, and you learn by listening to golfers. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, a, a story could go on and on and on. I've been urged to write a book about my life in the golf industry and maybe one of these days I'll do that. But I've just been really blessed with people that were willing to share with me what they knew about golf clubs and performance and tour players that were willing to share with me, you know, what they felt in a golf shot, what they wanted in a golf shot. And, um, and my inquisitive nature just is, uh, has always driven me to learn more and learn more. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting um, when I, when I listen to you and, and talking about um, not just playing the game, but actually really sort of diving into how things work. Um, that's something that's obviously missing in today. Everything's become, you know, through technology and, and uh, you know, robotics and all this kind of stuff. And, and you really don't have, you know, people sort of digging into how things work and why they do what they do. So it promised me to ask you this question. As I mentioned in the intro, you know, you've been 30-plus years, uh, you know, sort of working and focusing on, on the design and so forth of, of, uh, of really helping re- recreational golfers, which, you know, God bless you for that because everything always, nowadays seems to be more focused on the tours and and there's nothing wrong with that but you know the rest of the folks out there need some help so what has that 30 years experience taught you particularly because we're going to get into this now about the wedge game what about the wedge game um has from your perspective what has been wrong about it i guess is the best way to put it and what have you learned about it through your endeavors over the years working with other companies and now on your own um, that has taught you about the wedge game. What what what's not right about it, and what could be right about it? Well, you know, one of the blessings of my childhood was you know, I read a lot of golf books, and my dad encouraged me to read about golf architecture, golf history, and and all that kind of thing. So I feel like I'm pretty versed in it, and and I write a blog every week for a, one of the big uh, online uh, platforms, and so I, I interact with golfers a lot. I've been blessed to to ever since I've been in the wedge business, I've always had a, an online wedge fitting uh, experience, a protocol, interrogation, call it whatever you will. And I've seen what over 60,000 golfers have, have put in these profiles about what their challenges are. And and mm-hmm. I've had the good fortune to work with Tom Kite and Ben Crenshaw and 
Singer and Robert Wren and, and some wonderful, wonderful tour players that were very uh, liberal and free with, with, you know, sharing what they knew. And I think the biggest thing about the wedge game is that, you know, if you're 75 yards out from a green and you have the same shot that, you know, the tour player has from 75 yards and you've got the same shot that tour players had 10 years ago and 50 years ago and, and you know, Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson and Jimmy Demerit and, and on through Lee Trevino and Tom Watson and Nicholas and Palmer, when you're 75 yards from the hole, what year it is doesn't really matter. You know, your objective right. is to hit the ball into the green with enough height and spin to make the ball do what you want it to do and end up close to the flag. And I think the biggest, you know, the two biggest things that I just wrote about this last week is, first of all, this this P-club, as I call it in your bag, is no more a wedge than your five iron is. And, you know, these clubs have now been cranked down to have a P or a W on them. They're cranked down to, you know, 42, 43, 45 degrees. And you can't right. pitch the ball with loft and spin from 50 or 60 yards with a 42, 45-degree golf club. Um, you need a club with 49, 50, 52, 53 degrees of loft to hit a true pitch shot. And there are there right. are places for that forty four degree golf club. You know, one of the things I take great offense to is the numbering of golf clubs. And when I did the <laughs> Ben Hogan Fort Worth irons, I put the loft number on the bottom of every iron because there's no such thing as an eight iron. I mean, there's all kinds of different clubs that can have an eight on the bottom, so there's no standard there. And uh, it was just something I wanted to do from a measure of precision. We we asked for, we asked that of our wedges. What's the loft of that wedge? Well, why wouldn't we want to know that about our eight iron and our six iron? You know, so yeah. Um, but but in the wedge play, I think what the biggest change is, um, and and I started out designing putters. I'm going to kind of ramble a little bit here. I hope you don't mind. But no, in, that's fine. No, we got time. In putter development, you have the design of putters, the the evolving technique of putting. And what drives those two things, I think those two are interrelated. It's a chicken and egg thing. But what drives that is the continual acceleration of green speeds. I mean, when the USDA first kind of embraced the stimp meter, they went out in the 80s and stimped every, you know, like 500 golf courses around the country. And Oakmont, right. as we've all heard, was the fastest greens in the country at 9.7. 9.7. And, mm -hmm. and now it's like they want these greens to be 11 and a half, 12 and 13. Well, you know, if, if in the 80s Oakmont was 9.7, in the 40s it was probably 7, you know. And so the technique right. that Hogan and Nelson and Sneed and Bobby Jones before them, they were probably 4 in his day. Um, you know, these techniques changed from a risky popping stroke to a more of an arm and shoulder stroke and taking the hands more and more out of it as greens got, you know, icier and icier. And as that happened, putter design caught up, and the shaft moved toward the center, and the ping answer, and the zebra, and, and then into these big spaceship models. Putters are two ounces in the head heavier than they were when I started designing putters in the 80s, because the green speeds right. demanded that. And so I think if you look at that evolution, our, our game has evolved, you know, in all areas. But in the wedge category, look at what drivers are today compared to. Oh, I know. You know, when I was in college, I was still hitting the pursuit driver all the way up into the late 80s, early 90s. Um, it was the hardest club in the bag to master. And if you were a good driver of the ball, you really had an advantage. Well, mm -hmm. the, the, the tide is reversed now. The driver is the easiest club in the bag to master. It's this big watermelon on the end of a shaft and your ball sitting up on the tee. And, 
I mean, it's pretty hard to miss a ball with a driver that day, like 0%. The problem is putting and chipping and wedge play has gotten to be the hardest part of the game because the greens complexes are more diabolical, green speeds are faster, greens are firmer, and so it demands a lot of the wedge game, but if you look at wedges on the retail display, they really have not evolved like anything else in our golf bag. They haven't evolved like our shoes. They haven't evolved like our, you know, I mean, even tees. Look at all the technology you see, whether it's meaningful or not, is an argument in, in the tees. And I used to say 20 years ago that the only thing in your bag with 50-year-old technology is your tees and your wedges, but I can't say that about tees anymore. <laughs> right. So, right. Um, you know, and, and wedges are just stagnant compared to the acceleration of technology and everything else. And for some reason, and, you know, we'll go into the psychology of golfers, everybody wants to play this tour-validated wedge from one of the top three or four brands that has all the guys on tour, but yet nobody's yeah. trying to play their muscle back blade. I mean, you know, people realize, hey, I need to play a cavity back iron, and I need to have two, three, even four hybrids in my bag. But then I'm going and buying this tour wedge that is the most demanding club in the golf bag um, from a finicky perspective of forgiveness. And, um, and so it doesn't make any sense. And the, the big companies are focused on their tour players, their tour validation. Um, and I think the amateur recreational golfer that plays to a three or a five or a 12 or a 20 handicap is greatly, greatly hampered by that. Uh, those golf clubs are, I mean, wedges by nature are very hard to hit because of all the loft. I mean, everything is kind of a glancing blow compared to, say, a 7-iron or a driver. Um, and they're hard to master because of that. But then you add, they put a heavy stiff steel shaft in them that nobody can handle, and then the weight is all on the bottom of the club, which requires a very precise strike on the second, third, fourth groove to get anything out of that golf club. Um, and, and probably wedge skills or where we amateurs, even the best of us, even those that are blessed to play to a low single digit, we are further from a tour player. If you leave strength profile out, we're further yep. further from a tour player in our wedge play than any other part of our game. Um, it's just the, the best wedge player in, in country club golf in America is probably not as good around the greens as the worst guy on the Corn Ferry Tour. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, a, it's an art, and it takes dozens, hundreds, thousands of hours to to get to Jordan Spieth skill or Justin Thomas skill or any of these guys. And they've done it with wedges over the last 15 years of their life. These guys are all, you know, 28 to 35. They've been practicing wedge play since they were seven. And they've done it with wedges that really haven't changed very much. So their learning is cumulative, whereas the drivers they're playing now are nothing like the drivers they had 15 years ago. The ball they're playing right. now is nothing like the ball they played, but the wedges are almost identical. Um, and I think that is, is a real problem for the recreational golfers because nobody's out there saying, you know, you've got these nice cavity back irons that let you get away with shots. You need some wedges that let you get away with shots. And that's been my driving force for 30 years in the wedge category. How do I give you the versatility, the forgiveness, the distance consistency without compromising those little touch skill shots that you've learned hopefully you've learned yeah and and you know what's in there? i just want to add in there real quick because you, you'd mentioned you know tom kite and, and that earlier i remember when uh watching some of the older videos that he did in instruction and so forth 
Um, and, you know, he, he was one of the first ones that I remember talking about having four wedges in the bag. And, you know, once that, that you know, was sort of opened up, um, you know, everybody started adding more wedges. And from a tour player standpoint, I, I can understand that because, as you just very eloquently explained, you know, they've worked at it for a long time. But when I start seeing a lot of amateurs that have got two, three, and four wedges in their bag and they're having troubles hitting, hitting one, um, it, it just, you know, it, again, it, it's effective marketing is what it is that's done that. And, and I want to ask you this question because I was reading some, some things, obviously, to prepare for tonight. And you made a comment, and you said that a lot of the wedges that are out there um, have insufficient, insufficiency excuse me, built in. Explain what you mean by that so that the listeners understand. So when you look at the at a conventional wedge, and if you go through the rack, and if you, if you can kind of close your eyes to the graphics from one brand to the other brand to the other brand, there's a remarkable similarity between the wedges from brand A, brand B, brand C, brand D, brand E. You know, all the wedges along the bottom and the top two-thirds of the club is very thin because of all that weight on the bottom. And mm-hmm. the tour player, when you look at the face of the tour player's wedge, you see a wear pattern about the size of a penny, and it's centered right about the third or fourth groove, very low in the club. But if you right. look at a recreational golfer's wedges, you see a, if they've had their wedges for some period of time, you can see a wear pattern that's about the size of a half dollar, and it's centered up at the fifth or sixth or seventh groove, even if he's a pretty good player, mm-hmm. he or she. And right. these tour-designed wedges have a tremendous efficiency down on that third group because that's where all the mass is. But when you move impact up another half an inch to the fifth or sixth group, when you look at that club, it's very thin from there all the way up to the top of the blade. So there's no meat behind where the ball is. It's the same mm-hmm. club, but the mass is not right behind the point of impact. And one of the, the, the illustrations I've, I've and this is kind of cavity back iron kind of thing too, but it really applies to wedges more. If you think about a hammer, a carpenter's hammer, I mean, there hadn't been any significant changes to that product in 500 years, 400 years. Right. You know, a claw right. hammer is a claw hammer. A sledgehammer is a sledgehammer. And if you take a claw hammer, it drives a nail. Of, you know, if you take pneumatic air guns and stuff out of the equation, there's really nobody's ever made a better way to drive a nail than that claw hammer. And, mm-hmm. But if you take that claw hammer and you turn it on its side and you strike the nail where the hammer and the, and the handle meet, it's mm-hmm. very inefficient. If Everybody's probably right. done that. But it's very inefficient. Yep. Well, it's the same hammer. It's the same amount of mass in the head of that hammer. It's the same you swinging that hammer. And yet, because the mass is not in line with the impact point, the efficiency, the smash factor, if you will, to use a golf equivalent term, is tremendously compromised. And so even on your best strikes hit up around the fifth or sixth groove and you think that's center face, you're losing 8 to 10 to 12% of the impact efficiency smash factor that the tour player is getting by hitting it down on that third groove. And when it goes up even higher in the face, the ball's sitting in the rough, and everybody knows you you hit that wedge shot, you feel it out toward the toe, you feel it high in the face. Before you even look up, you know it's going to be in the bunker. It's not going to get there. It's going to drop in the pond. It's going to drop in the bunker. Mm-hmm. I mean, we all know that shot, right? Yeah. Well, that's built into the golf club. There's no mass up there behind impact. And so that ball launches high with minimal spin. 
it has reduced ball speed. I mean, it just is physically impossible to get to its target because all the efficiencies were, you know, were missed on that shot. And I've always said, well, you, you can get them on the air. You've got a lot of loft on these golf clubs. Let's rearrange the mass to where there is more meat behind that mid-face shot and that high-face shot. And then what happens with that is another golf equipment term comes in called gear effect. And gear effect mm -hmm. is, is at play in every golf club. And so if you look at what we've done with drivers, the holy grail is high launch, low spin, right? And we've yep, gotten right. there by putting all the weight as far in the bottom of the club as we can get it. Well, where is mm -hmm. all the weight on your, on your wedge? It's as far in the bottom of the club as it can be put. So by nature, if, even if you leave loft out of the equation, by design, a wedge wants to launch the ball high with minimal spin. But yet every golfer is trying to figure out how to get a penetrating trajectory with maximum spin. You're fighting the golf club. You've got to learn how to hit those wedges down around the third and nearly blading it to get the maximum efficiency out of that golf club. So my, my question is, you can either go spend thousands of hours to try to learn how to hit it on the third groove, or you can just buy a golf club that's, that's engineered around the way you hit your wedges, which is up toward the middle of the face. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, it, it's very interesting the analogy that you made between the, you know, the better players and, and the rest of us out here. Sorry, I lost you. Um, it, uh, sorry, can you hear me now? Hello. Yep. Hi, are you able to hear me now, I Terry? I lost you there for a minute. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Um, so yeah. it was very interest. It was very interesting what you were saying about you know the differences between some of the better players and um, you know obviously most high handicapper amateurs in in that the, the the pattern on the wedge for the tour players is is quite small and as you said down around the second, third, and maybe even uh, fourth groove, whereas the, the the higher handicap is is further up the, the club face. So what, what is it, that, just to sort of, so that people understand, what are the tour players doing differently um, using the same equipment the rest of us are that's causing them to hit it? Are they hitting down on it more? Are they, is there something that they're doing differently than the rest of the people to get that, that different dispersion pattern? Absolutely. They're practicing their wedges 40 and 50 hours a week, <laughs> and we're not. Right. I mean, it, you know, well, the, the striking striking any golf ball with precision and consistency is a skill thing, and these guys make a living, you know, all day playing golf. I mean, they work on their wedge games incessantly. You watch the PGA this week. I mean, these guys are going to be exhibiting some real magic around the greens because they're going to have to, and these, mm -hmm. these green complexes are going to be more challenging. But, you know, at the Masters last month, you watch the magical stuff these guys do, and it's because – they go out and spend two, three, four hours every day doing nothing but hitting those little wedge shots and finding 80 different ways to hit it 35 feet, you know. And, and the rest of us, you know, we go hit a bucket of balls. If, if we either don't practice at all or we may hit, you know, 40 balls before we go to the first tee to warm up. But how many people do you see out there, you know, taking three buckets of balls and hitting two or 300 little soft wedge shots? just to learn how right. to do that better. You just don't see recreational mm -hmm. golfers do that. We don't have the time and we don't have the interest to do that. But to those guys, you know, when you look at the guys making their living, there are thousands of really good ball strikers. And there mm -hmm. are hundreds that are making their living on some level of the tour. 
and there are dozens that are doing it really well. And it's all right. about, you know, your mental aptitude and all that, but it's about how hard do you work at it? I mean, playing golf at the highest level where it's LPGA, PGA, Corn Ferry, European Tour, playing golf at the highest level is not a hobby. <laughs> this is a full-time job. No. Just like you have right. your full-time job and I have mine, and and your listeners all have their full-time job, and, you know, we're not going to ever have tour player skills with a wedge because it requires massive amounts of time. So rather than try to figure out how do I learn how to hit wedges like a tour player, and I think, I mean, I've written a lot of tips about how to improve your ball striking with wedges, and there are some great little secrets of that. But, you know, the the USDA had the the campaign before Arnold Palmer passed, you know, swing your swing. We all have a swing that we kind of brought to the party. And, and most people are not going to go to the instruction to go rebuild their whole golf game. So we're playing cavity back irons. We're playing hybrids. We're, you know, experimenting with different drivers. We're going to find that bag of equipment that helps us be the best we can be with what we're bringing to the party. And, and my wedges are, are designed to be part of that, that team that you have in your golf bag. And, and we, we look at the short end of the set as, as very different than the middle of the set. And um, those clubs over 37, 40 degrees aloft, these are your money clubs, whether you're playing on the PGA Tour or whether you're playing to break 90 or 100, you're going to do it by being good or better with your clubs in the high loft range. And, you know, and, and because – people don't think about the fact that, you know, how many shots inside 100 yards do you take in a round of golf, not counting putts? Um, you know, and it's going to probably be somewhere in the 13 to 15 range of all different mm-hmm. kinds of shots, and it might be 17 or 20, depending on your handicap, more than you hit right. your driver. Um, and drivers are a lot easier to figure out how to hit than wedges are, so, and I tell people all the time, how do I get a better wedge game? Said so for every driver you hit all the range, hit a hundred wedge shots. That that's how you get there. Yep. But no, also you're exactly you right. Play a wedge that's more forgiving. Yeah, and and that and that brings us into you know Edison Golf and and I want to talk about um, your you guys just recently uh, launched back I believe in March the uh, Edison 2.0 wedge and um, design, and I want to first go back to your earlier design. What's the difference between the earlier design you had a, a, you know, a few years ago? Uh, what changes have you made in the new version that's coming out, or the updated version, if you will, uh, the 2.0? So talk about your earlier uh, wedges that uh, Edison uh, came out with, um, I think in 2020, I believe, and uh, what was unique about those particular designs, and then talk about the new one that just came out earlier this year, um, some of the things, the changes that you made, and why you made those changes. Well, as you mentioned in your very eloquent and very nice introduction, I've been doing wedges for 30 years, and I've always pursued this idea of how do I make a wedge that's forgiving and versatile and, and allows you to optimize whatever shot-making skills you bring to the table, and we all have a different skill set, right? So the the... After I did the Hogan thing and, and took a little powder for about two years, kind of recharged my batteries, and I started writing my blog for GolfWRX.com, and no sooner than I started doing that, people that played my wedges said, hey, when are you going to do wedges again? And I couldn't come up with a reason not to, so I started working on this idea in about 2018 um, of, of what haven't I done yet. You know, I've pushed the envelope to this level, 
but how far can I push the envelope? And I started working on prototypes, and, and that ended up being the original Edison Forged. Had a very modest mm-hmm. amount of perimeter weighting, but the main thing is it was so much thicker above the fourth and fifth groove. We had 30, 32% more mass in the club head above that fourth or fifth groove than anybody out there. Even though all of them are kind of thickening the top half of their blade, I'm very flattered by that because they're almost where I was with my Reed Lockhart designs in the mid-90s, but not quite. Uh, they're nowhere close to where I am now. Um, and so as soon as that club was on the market and Edison is a real company, I'm, I'm, I'm a tinkerer. I'm always playing around with, you know, machining and grinding and lead tape and welding material and, you know, can I make this even better, make it even better? And um, I, I pushed myself to go past what probably is real, um, and I came back. And so the, the 2.0 Edison, the primary uh, uh, improvement is we moved another 17 to 19 grams of mass up above your probable point of impact. So we're getting, mm-hmm. and we shaved a little bit of mass right behind your point of impact, so we created a little more efficient sweet spot, if you will, around that fifth groove. Um, but we move mass above the fifth groove, which helps bring trajectory down, brings your landing angle is steeper because of this, your launch angle is shallower, your spin rates are higher. Um, as you, and, and when I test wedges, I don't look at perfect shots. I want, you know, 50 shots off of the golf club all over the face. You know, what, what real golf yep. represents. And then I want to look right, at exactly. the averages. I want to look at the extremes. You know, what was my long, short extreme? What was my high, low extreme on launch angles? That's what I'm always looking for is, you know, there's every golf club has one perfect spot to make contact. Um, whether it's a driver, a wedge, a putter, every club's got one. There's no such thing as a big sweet spot. There is a pinpoint sweet spot in every golf club. And then what we try to do is mitigate the deterioration of performance as impact moves away from that point. Um, so what I did is try to, to get the, a, a larger effective zone that would put you reasonable proximity to the hole. I did a few little refinements on my patented sole that I created in the early 90s. Um, it's the most versatile sole in golf, and I've long been a, a, a heretic when this whole notion of bounce fitting, um, we can come mm-hmm. back into the sole design because that's what most people think of wedges, no more than the sole design, and that's very far from true. And then we perfect we we modified our our plating a little bit uh, to get a little better moisture resistance. Um, and then we one of the big changes we made in our our build is we went to a, a we had always worked with the parallel tip shafts from KBS and we moved to their taper tip selection uh, after quite a bit of of uh, of experimenting. We feel like this gives us a little higher level of performance. I'm always going to be pursuing higher levels of performance. So, you know, I mean, these just got introduced, but I've got things in my workbench that may never come to market. They may come to market in a year or two or three. Who knows? But um, that's the fun of doing what I do for a living. I always get to keep tinkering and exploring and experimenting. And, you know, there was a, our namesake, Thomas Edison, um, that we created that when we created the company. And somebody asked him one time about, another one of his light bulb experiments that failed. And they said, do these failures bother you? He goes, oh, they're not failures. I'm just creating more and more ways not to, not to get the results I want, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, it, I mean, and it's very interesting. And, um, and so that's inspiring. He, he had another really 
wonderful saying that I didn't know this. Uh, a close friend and business partner was a big fan of Thomas Edison because he's an engineer. And uh, Thomas Edison had a great saying. It's like, when you've exhausted all the possibilities, remember this. You haven't. Right. <laughs> pretty wise. well said. Yeah, yeah. for sure. So, That's why. Yeah, and so you know, I think that you know the the 2.0 is an incremental improvement on the original Edison Forge. You know, all golf clubs are an incremental improvement, hopefully, on what came before. I will never just introduce the model because I'm tired of looking at the old one. <laughs> Which right, the big companies right. have to. There's only so many ways you can reinvent the wheel, and when you're on the pressure of a new model every 18 months or a new model every 12 or 24 months, um, you know, I mean, you're under pressure. It's like if you invented something six months after your current model was introduced, you got to wait because that's the marketing cycle. Pay any attention to marketing cycles, and uh, you know, the Edison forged wedges. And by our testing, is only one wedge on the market better than our original wedge, and that's our new one. Um, our, mm-hmm. our original wedge is still outperforms everything on the market today by our testing. So, you know, I'm trying to improve on it always. But I'm not held back by what tour players want. And those guys are finicky. Those guys can feel things you can barely measure. And that's not who I serve. I've let, you know, Bob Volk, he's a brilliant guy, got a great team with him. Roger Cleveland, known him since well, way back in the 80s. These guys, you know, there are just so many talented people out there, but mainly mm-hmm. most of them are focused on the tour player, and that's just not my guy. I mean, he's fine. He's well taken care of. Those guys can have them all they want. I'm, I'm trying to get the 12 handicapper to, to break 80 for the first time or whatever the, the goal may be. Yeah, and, and you know, you raise a really interesting point because, um, you know, when you look at where handicaps are for, for the everyday golfer, they've barely budged in the last several decades um, because the fact that the others are really not focusing on the everyday golfer. They're focusing on the tour players and who, of course, are, are shooting, you know, better scores and playing better and, and so forth. But the, the regular guys out there, are not have not seen a lot of improvement. I mean, they're playing. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but they're playing similar equipment to what the pros are playing. Um, obviously, not as successfully, but they're not reaping the benefits out of it. They're not actually really improving as much as what they're being led to believe. And you know, like you, I'm. I would much rather, you know, have a product. Um, yeah, you want something that certainly looks good, but if if that's all it offers from what you had last season. I mean, I've seen guys out every season there, you know, when the new driver comes out, it's in their bag. And, you know, when I, and I, I teach for a living, I'm a golf professional. So I teach, uh, you know, lessons and that. And, and I see the same people all the time coming out with the new equipment. And I say, look, you know, Bob, <laughs> why have you got a new, you know, new driver in your bag? You still can't hit the one you had from last season, but it's just, it's, it's all marketing. Um, you know, I mean, we could go down a, a rabbit hole so deep with, with that discussion. We may have, I may have to have you back and we'll talk about that uh, a little bit more, but I want to talk about your wedges, uh, and give you some, uh, good, uh, opportunities to, to talk in, uh, about that. But so, you know, Terry, in, in your new wedge, the 2.0, um, you're using what you refer to as a five-step forging process. How does that help? What is it that, and what do you mean by five-step, uh, forging? So 
the, the forging process, since I've been doing golf clubs, and I've done cast golf clubs, and I've done forged golf clubs, and 30 years ago, forging was a relatively crude process that required a tremendous amount of handwork. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, like when I was involved with Hogan in the 90s, you know, a, a five iron may come in out of the forgery, the forging, the foundry that makes the raw club head, it may come in at 400 grams of weight, but they have to polish and machine and grind and, and do everything to get that five iron down to 235 grams. So, I mean, they were removing, mm-hmm. you know, 40% of the mass of this raw forging. Well, with this right. forging, and, I mean, across the board, forging techniques have gotten so much better that a, 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 with this five-step forging process, that final forging is as close to a finished golf club as can possibly be made by the forging process. And so other than the weight loss of machining and, and drilling out the hosel for the shaft, there's only eight, nine grams of weight removed from that club. That forging is so perfect because of the five-step process. So the first process is starts with a, with a bar of, of steel and then mm-hmm. this 800, there's a series of five production tools, and this bar is superheated, and it goes from one tool to the next to the next to the next, and it's pounded into shape repeatedly so that when it comes out of that last tool, it's very clearly a, the golf club head you're going to buy. Um, mm-hmm. And then we've got a machine grooves and faces and all that to get the precision. But the five-step forging right. process, because this club is going through that many processes, as you can imagine, this piece of metal has been hit five different times sequentially with an 800-ton press. I mean, this the molecules are so compressed together, which they aren't in a cast golf club, but they're, they're compressed together so much there's just this beautiful, solid, form, firm feel of the ball coming off the club. And, you know, every golf shot is kind of an expression of everything you learned before. So getting really good feedback to your hands of how the ball came off the club is what the learning process is all about, um, particularly in your short game and putting. You know, every every putt is filling your memory banks with that stroke produced that feel which went that far, you know. Um, so we believe it's the best way to make a golf club, um, a precision golf club. It's a, it's a, it's considerably more expensive than casting clubs like the big companies do. Um, some people would argue there's no difference, um, but you know that's a personal. Uh, I think if you hit our golf club and against any of the other clubs out there, uh, uh, most people will tell us they can feel the difference uh, because of right. this, this solid feel. And the and the golf club is shaped differently, and so that shot hit a little high on the face feels a lot more solid than it does with the wedge that's in your bag right now. Um, you know, and talking to your listeners at large, I mean, you're playing a tour design wedge, but you've got some cavity back irons and nobody in the PGA championship this week is playing the arm you're playing, you know, right. and you're not playing the shafts they play, but you're out there trying to play the wedge they play. And, you know, my, my advice is, Hey, try something different. And unless you're a brilliant mm-hmm. wedge player and you don't want it to get any better, then why not try something different? I mean, we have a, mm-hmm. a unique program up that no, you know, premium golf club has. We'll build you a wedge. We'll ship. It. We'll build it for you. After your specifications for length and line. Go pick whichever loft of our line you want. 
and we'll build it to you and, and go play it a month. Go play two or three, five rounds of golf with it. You're going to find yourself getting away with things that you're going to go, wow, I didn't hit that very good, but, man, it, it made the front of the green. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and, and that's what it's all about is distance consistency. You know, if you're 92 yards and you think you know how to hit the shot 92 yards, if you miss the, the perfect sweet spot by a half an inch, I think you still ought to get 88 or 89 yards out of it instead of 75. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And and you're so right. I mean, you know, people are looking for clubs that offer forgiveness. You know, I mean, we're you know, again, if you're not able to get out there and play on a regular basis, like obviously the pros do, um, you want to know that your equipment is going to, um, you know, sort of catch the fall occasionally for you. And what happens is with a lot of the equipment that you're buying, and you're exactly right, and, and I understand, I'm, I'm not saying it to, to knock, uh, uh, you know, the competitors out there to, to what you're offering, but the truth of the matter is it, it, it all comes down to, as I said earlier, the marketing. And a, a lot of the, the equipment, same with the drivers, it's driven me nuts for years, and I've said this to most of the people that I've taught, is I don't care who makes the driver you know, what, it, what it's made out of, if you can't use the cr- club properly, it's not going to make a difference. You know, this 10, 20, 30 extra yards, it doesn't make a difference if you don't know how to put the club face on the ball correctly. So, I mean, you can get, I've seen people, you know, getting a 20, 30-year-old driver out and go against the new one, and you give it to the new one to an amateur that can't make good solid contact, and the guy that can make good contact hits that old 20, 30-year-old driver that's been kicking around, and he outdrives them every time, and that's because he knows how to use the equipment. Um, but, you know, for some of the golfers out there that struggle, particularly with their wedges, you need that forgiveness. And the truth of the matter is, as you said earlier, a lot of the stuff that's out there right now really does not do that. So you, you mentioned about fitting and, 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 you know, getting them to try that out. So is there a fitting process? What does the consumer need to do to ensure a proper fit? So we have an online interactive experience for lack of a term we call the wedge fit scoring range analysis and it's basically a, it's a questionnaire that we interact with you um, to learn about you know what kind of you're playing what kind of distances what kind of trajectories we were learning a lot about your game the same things you would ask as an instructor or you would observe right um you right. Know, with your guy we don't get to do that and my big thing on on wedge fitting is if you have a set of irons that you reasonably comfortable with, I want to blend the wedges to those irons. I don't want to match the irons exactly, but I want to blend them. I want to get a loft sequencing that makes sense for your gapping. I want to get a shaft in your wedges that's of a similar weight, maybe slightly softer flex um, than what's in your irons, because you're used to those irons. And the main thing is to get the weight right and the material right. If you're playing a 70-gram R-flex graphite in your irons, and you go buy one of the top brand wedges off the shelf with a 130 gram stiff flex steel shaft, you cannot make the same swing with those two golf clubs. They're two ounces difference in weight, and you right. can't make the same swing. I uh, I went recently. I played 80 gram graphite in in my irons and wedges. KBS. I'm a big KBS fan, and I went for an anonymous wedge fitting at one of the big retailers a week or two ago <laughs> to see how they approached it. I walked in, you know, and didn't have any of my stuff in my bag. And, you know, the guy was having me go through. He didn't even ask me, what, do you, what are you playing in your irons? He goes, you know, let's, let's hit some wedges. I got four of them here. Well, they all have, they all have a 115 to 130-gram stiff shaft, and I hit a reasonable number of balls 
on a week. But, you know, I hit 20, 25 balls with each of these wedges. And after 100 shots, I'm getting fatigued because I'm swinging two ounces more weight with every swing right. than I'm used to with my wedges. And I'm 71 <laughs> and blessed with good health. But still, you know, two ounces times 100 swing, you know, is, is that, that's a lot. Um, right. So, you know, I believe you, you first thing, you look at the golf bag and say, you know, hey, how do you like these irons? Were they custom fitted? You know, how long have you played them? And if that person is comfortable with those, then I'm going to blend the wedges to them. I'm, you know, and maybe we want a hair heavier wedge shaft and it depends on the player. I think one of the things I think a lot of amateur golfers suffer in their short games, particularly greenside, is if these guys on the PGA Tour who are all gym rats, right, these guys are, they're athletes. They are physical specimens. And if they're hitting mm-hmm. all these little shots around the green with a wedge with a 130-gram shaft in it, you don't have a chance to hit those same shots with your hand strength because you couldn't get in an arm wrestling contest with Brooks Kepka. Sorry, you're not going right. to win, right? And so <laughs> right. if you lighten and you've lightened your irons up to get more club head speed, you've lightened your wedges down to that same range where the irons are so that you have a chance to manipulate these wedges. I had a, a, a few uh, Division two collegiate uh, women players uh, a, a while back, a couple of months ago, well, I guess it was January before their season got going, their coach brought them over. And these girls are, they're not, you know, top-level D1 athletes, but, you know, they're talented players. They're shooting mid-high 70s at a D2 school. And, you know, these girls, um, you know, kind of gap wedge range for them is about 80 yards. And they're all trying to swing these 130-gram off-the-shelf, you know, brand A, brand B, brand C wedges. And I said, let me put something in your hands that's closer match to what you've got in your irons. And they were just blown mm-hmm. away by all of a sudden they could do things they couldn't do with that other golf club because they didn't have the hand strength to manipulate that golf club properly. So I'm a big believer right. of weight matching. And then you get the line right. I think your line and your wedges should be one to two degrees flatter than your irons. Um, and I think that's a general rule of thumb that applies across the board. PGA Tour players do it because it works. So let's mm-hmm. take a cue from something that works. Um, and, uh, so, you know, and then the fitting thing is, I mean, you're a golf professional, so fitting is part mm-hmm. science, part art. And, you know, I think the, the launch monitor is, is less an influence in wedge fitting than it is in say getting the right driver or five iron. And, and one of the offenses right. I take to the fitting world is that fitting bay is full of seven irons that are 28, 29 degree golf clubs. And if you, mm-hmm. they're going to find you the seven iron that goes the longest, and, and hopefully it's straightest for you, and they're going to build you a whole set of irons on that. Well, then they're going to try to sell you this P-club and this A-wedge and whatever they're going to call it. And that, <laughs> that club is, is, is 20 degrees you know, different from that seven iron that you tested. And if you go 20, you only have to go 15 degrees the other way from that seven iron, and you got your driver. Well, nobody mm-hmm. ever fit a driver off of a seven iron fitting. But right. how can you fit a pitching wedge off of a seven iron fitting? It's 15 degrees different. So you bring that up, people, they don't want to talk to you about it. But they're not going to let you hit those wedges. <laughs> and, and, and set match wedges, I think, are, I think it's just it's, it's a wrong thing to do. The technology that I, makes I, a good 28-degree golf club does not make a good 50-degree golf club. 
I couldn't agree more. And, and it all it all boils down to to this is you want the golfers to see improvement. You want the and I'm not talking tour, but I'm talking the the everyday golfer. And and I almost I think a lot of the times that the industry is almost stacked up against the everyday golfer because they're not producing equipment that's really truly helping them as much as they're led to believe. And and you know I, I you know I've said this many many times on the show and I mentioned it a few moments ago is it bothers me. I mean, I went to the PGA show this past uh, January, and again, you know, they're schlepping out, you know, something new here and there, and it's the same stuff, just a different, you know, package and calling it something different, but basically it's the same thing. Maybe the, you know, the materials are slightly different, but it's essentially the same thing, and I look at it, you know, now you're wanting people to spend five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars for a brand new driver when they can't hit the one they've had, you know, for the last several years, and that bothers me because, it you know it, this is why you get so many people um, unfortunately turning away. So well, well, nothing here, you I as wanna... a golf professional is a real secret to improvement, and you know, and there is merit to good equipment, but um, you know, good technique sure makes up for a lot of ill too. And I mean, that's the business you're in. And you know, one of the things right. we get about our wedges is, wow, these don't look anything like anybody else's wedges. And I said, absolutely not. And the ping answer didn't look like anybody else's putter. And the tailor-made Tour Preferred Metal Wood didn't look like anybody's persimmon. And Big Bertha didn't look like mm-hmm. anybody's metal wood. And the first hybrids didn't look like anybody's three iron. If you want to change the performance of a golf club in a big way, you have to change the shape and the look and, and the way that club is configured in a big way. Um, you know, it's just like, you know, nobody's going to engineer a pickup that can hang with a Maserati on a, you know, on a speed right. race. Because you can't make a pickup work like that. It just doesn't work. You know, by the same token, nobody ever made a great off-road Maserati, you know. know, um, But I think the form follows function, and and in our world, it's probably the biggest truism, is form follows function. And the function I'm after is penetrating trajectories, forgiving of your mishits, and a soul that can handle any lie that you come up against in a round of golf. And we really haven't talked about the soul much, but... This whole bounce and grind conundrum has got people so confused. Um, you know, you probably run into that in your teaching all the time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You, that that's a whole other show. We'll have here. I'm going to have you come back on again, um, and we'll we'll continue this discussion. But uh, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up. But I want to let the folks know, uh, tuning into the program, that if they go to your website, uh, uh, EdisonWedges.com, uh, they can. Uh, take a look at everything there, but also uh, they can do the fitting uh, and interact, as you said, right there online. So uh, they don't even have to step out of their home. They can just get online and go through the process there. Um, So if you go to edisonwedges.com, all of what we've been talking about and much more uh, is available on uh, Terry's website. But Terry, I want to thank you for coming on and I really enjoyed, uh, you know, our discussion and I appreciate, um, you know, what you do is, is you make, you know, you're, you're helping to make our job as, as teach professionals that much easier um, by really speaking the truth. And, and again, this is not, to, I'm not suggesting that, you know, we're, we're knocking what else is out there. But I think, you know, education is, is a very important thing for golfers. And I think that, you know, it's, you know, we all want to sell and do this and do that. But the, the truth of the matter is we want to see improvement with, uh, with our students and we want to make sure they're getting the right clubs in their hand. And uh, it, it sounds like, you know, you put a lot of um, 
heart into to what you do and obviously take uh, and put a lot of passion into it as well, and, and I can hear it in, in our discussion tonight. So I want to thank you for, for doing that and uh, and not, you know, going down the road that so many others have done in the past and, and just, you know, go about all just about the sales. Um, you're actually trying to make some changes and improve uh, uh, people's enjoyment of the game, and that's really what it's all about. We want to, you know, bring more people into the game, but more importantly, we want to keep them here in the game, and, and the only way to do that is to be truthful with them and say, hey, this is something I think that uh, you need to take a serious look at. But, Terry, I want to thank you for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live, and I will definitely – uh, make arrangements to have you come back on and uh, and uh, share some more uh, great insight to uh, to Edison Golf. That'd be great. I'd love to do it. It seems like the hour just flew by. Hope it did for your listeners I know. as well. And and uh, yeah, I'd love to come back on and we get into the whole topic of grooves and grinds, which is the other part of the wedge conundrum. Well, we will we will have a uh, part two. Uh, to this show, and I look forward to having you on. But, Terry, um, thank you very much for joining me tonight on Golf Talk Live, and I will reach out to the appropriate parties, and we'll make that happen uh, here before too long. But have a great weekend. Enjoy the the PGA, and um, keep doing the great stuff that you're doing. And, again, go to edisonwedges.com and check out uh, their line of of great wedges and uh, get yourself fitted properly. Thank you very much, Terry, for your time. It was fun. Bye-bye. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, that was uh, Terry Kohler, uh, Chairman and Director of Innovation at Edison Golf. And again, go to edisonwedges.com as their website, and you can do everything, including get fitted for uh, your uh, Edison wedges. And their 2.0 wedge is uh, a lot of good information on that. And we'll get into some more information the next time, but it's hard to get all, all of that technical stuff down uh, in just an hour show. But I think uh, we gave you uh, certainly, hopefully, a taste of what Terry's doing at Edison and uh, you can check it out and, and learn a little bit more, um, you know, for yourselves. But, again, go to edisonwedges.com. Uh, all right, also special thanks to the guys earlier, John Decker and Jim Endicott, for joining me on the Coach's Corner panel. I appreciate your input, guys, always, and I look forward to having you guys back on a future panel together. Um, on that note, uh, have a great weekend, everybody. Enjoy this weekend's golf. Get out to yourself and play and practice, and uh, uh, hopefully the tips that we gave you on the Coach's Corner panel tonight uh, will help you uh, uh, produce a more enjoyable game. Uh, I know I'm going to try to get out there and hit a few balls myself and maybe get a few holes in. But uh, have a great weekend, everybody. God bless, and I will see you next time right here on Golf Talk Live. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. We'd like to thank this week's Coach's Corner panel and a special thank you to tonight's guest. Remember to join Ted every Thursday from 6 to 8 p.m. Central on Golf Talk Live. And be sure to follow Ted on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're interested in being a guest on Golf Talk Live, send Ted an email at ted.golftalklive at gmail.com. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.